Father in heaven, Jesus is coming soon. That's the promise and the assurance and our blessed hope. As we think of that coming event, we also realize that the word of God is clear that until that time, we have to be dependent upon you. Not that that will ever change, but that we have a tendency today to be dependent on ourselves. And I pray that you will guide our study today and remind us is that as we move from Babylon to the promised land of heaven, that you've promised to be with us and that you've given us guidance in your word that will help us to know exactly what you want to do for us in preparation for the return of Jesus. Bless our time now, we pray, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we left off in chapter 18. We want to transition from where we ended yesterday I said 18 and 17. I want to transition to where we left off in chapter 17 yesterday into chapter 18 and looking at the um, paragraph that is at the end of chapter 17. Now you all have that, right? Because you've got 16, 17, and 18. Did I include 19? Good, good, good. So we're going to pick up from this, and, and I want to kind of remind us, I, we didn't read this paragraph, and there's some valuable parts of it that will help us as we move in today. The last quotation from Ellen White on, uh, I believe it's page 118, which is just before one, uh, chapter 18. It says, the great plan of redemption as revealed in the closing work for these last days should receive close examination. The scenes connected with the sanctuary above should make an impression upon the minds and hearts of all that they may be able to impress others. All need to become more intelligent in regard to the work of the atonement which is going on in the sanctuary above. When this grand truth is seen and understood, those who hold it will work in harmony with Christ to prepare a people to stand in the great day of God, and their efforts will be successful. You ever wanted to know what it is that God wants you and me to do to be a successful people and leading other people to be ready for Jesus? Here's direction. He wants to make sure that we, first of all, understand Christ's work in the heavenly sanctuary and the work that he's seeking to do in us and what he's seeking to accomplish. By study, contemplation, and prayer, God's people will be elevated above common earthly thoughts and feelings and will be brought into harmony with Christ and his great work of cleansing the sanctuary above from the sins of the people. Just a little bit of warning. There is all kinds of things going on in the world today and even in Christian circles and even in Adventism. And there are some dangerous practices out there. I'm going to tell you that they're out there. And that word contemplation kind of struck it in my mind because there are, there's good meditation and there's bad meditation. 
They are things that lead us in the wrong direction, things that lead us in the right direction. I'm not here to discuss that topic today, but what she's talking about uh, is us contemplating the ministry of Christ. Some of the kinds of meditation that's out there today that claims to be Christian teaches Christians to empty their mind of all whatever. That's not Christian. If Christ wanted us to empty our minds, he would not have had to die on the cross because he could have just emptied our minds out and poured in what he wanted to pour in. But he treats us as human beings. He treats us as individuals who are his creation. He treats us as individuals who are able to make decisions. He treats us not as robots, but he treats us as individuals who have to decide whether or not to follow Jesus Christ. That is God's plan for us. So I've said enough about that. If you know what I'm talking about, great. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, that's probably good too. All right, I'm going to keep going. In that paragraph, their faith will go with him into the sanctuary and the worshipers on earth will be carefully reviewing their lives and comparing their characters with a great standard of righteousness. They must assimilate the word of God and reflect the divine attributes. Christ must be abiding in us and we in him in order to do work for God. This is pulling this all together. Jesus was teaching his people. This is what we were talking about yesterday. He was teaching his people about how to live the Christian life. They had been enraptured in, in, in and involved so much in Egypt, they could not understand what it meant to be a Christian. Now, those are my words. They didn't understand Christ. They looked forward to a Messiah, but that was a long way from them. They didn't have an understanding of that. They were so absorbed by that, by the time they got out of Egypt, came to the Red Sea, they were very clearly still having trouble with faith. They immediately wanted to abandon trust in God and decide, hey, it's better off for us to go back with the Egyptians. Maybe they'll have mercy on us. <laughs> God in his mercy put a wall between them and the Egyptians. Otherwise, they probably would have gone running back to them and throwing their arms around them. Oh, we missed you so much. They came to the Red Sea. God looked them, took them through the Red Sea, led them on to the Mount Sinai, taught them about the law, not for the purpose for them to earn their salvation by works, by obedience to the law. But he taught them the law because he wanted them to understand it was the standard of righteousness. And then, at the same time, he taught them they were incapable of being obedient to the law. He did that all through the ad experience because he didn't have to teach them. They taught themselves. They quickly agreed to keep it, then broke that promise and God had to help them to understand that there was a solution to that problem. And the sanctuary became the, the uh, classroom where they learned the whole, um, the whole event of the plan of salvation and what it was all about. That's what the sanctuary was about. So Ellen White, as she's taking that understanding here and is telling us that uh, this in this passage, she's helping us to understand that today it's still important for us to go into the heavenly sanctuary, uh, spiritually speaking, 
and to be in connection with Jesus in the, in the heavenly sanctuary and to understand what Jesus is doing there and the ministry that he has. And it's not just a legal transaction work that he's doing there. The work that he's doing there is the work of working in our hearts and our minds and changing our hearts and minds. What Hebrews says is taking the a stony heart and replacing it with a fleshly heart, one that is susceptible to the leading of the Spirit of God, and that is how He's changing us. It's not us changing ourselves, it's Him changing us. And that's what the sanctuary message is all about. So when she's talking about this, she's talking about us contemplating that and searching it out and getting deeper into it. So I hope that you're challenged to do exactly that when you leave this place and, and continue your journey here. I know 250 pages sounds like a lot, but it is a manuscript and not just a book, so that helps a little bit. It's double space, does that help? <laughs> and then, at any rate, as you read through that and you begin to pull some of these other pieces that are in here, I think you'll begin to see God has a wonderful message in reminding us of what he did for the children of Israel coming out of Egypt on their way to the promised land and into the promised land and what he wants to do for us today. So let me just finish this thought and I'll come to you. So as you're, you think about the sanctuary, think about the children of Israel now with, with this imagery. And they, they've been out there for a while. You know, they came to, the, to Mount Sinai and they've been camped around that, they got the whole law experience and all that was part of that. And then he gave them the model of the sanctuary, Hebrews chapter 7, 8, and 9 helped to kind of round that all out and connects the past with the present and God's and Christ's work in the sanctuary. And God gave them the model, gave it to Moses. Moses built the sanctuary. The sanctuary then became their model of the plan of salvation and they began to understand that. Once they had been had that opportunity to see that and to learn those lessons, God was able then to begin to move them toward the promised land. And his intention was that they would march from there after those lessons, having learned that, and march on to the promised land. That was his intent. Steve? I really appreciate that emphasis because so often people think of just the legal transactions where you used but it's a cleansing of the sanctuary, and it's not a fiction. What's cleansed in heaven must have been cleansed in heart, or you're going to just replace it. And so the power of that cleansing is what we really need to appreciate. Mm-hmm. And on the day of atonement, they were not going to the institution. There was no new sinning by them. deeply interested in what was happening there. I appreciate that, because you're pointing out that this is not just a, a process where we can check off something and, and say, okay, therefore God has done what needs to be done in my life. When, when John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that if we confess our sins, he is willing to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, you don't stop with, uh, with forgive us our sins. 
He is willing to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what the whole plan of salvation is all about. That's why John says then in chapter 2 verse 1 that Jesus is our advocate. He's our lawyer. He's in heaven because if we do sin, he is willing to forgive our sins. But he's still continuing in that process, the work of renewing us and removing from us that unrighteousness that he needs to take away to prepare us for heaven. And we sometimes are too shallow in our work because we ignore the work of the sanctuary. Seventh-day Adventists are just as susceptible to this problem as are all other Christians, evangelical Christians and others who do not even have the sanctuary message. Because if you have the sanctuary message and you don't study the sanctuary message, you are just in the same place as other Christians are who have never seen the sanctuary message. And as I've been saying for the last couple of days, it's in there in the Word of God. It's here for us to see. We cannot afford to miss the sanctuary message. So good point. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate that. So here now are the children of Israel. They've been encamped around the, uh, the mount where Jesus has spoken to them and he has given them the law. He takes Moses up on the mountain. He writes out the law by his own hand. I'm. Can you just... Let your mind imagine this whole experience. You know, the children of Israel weren't up there on that mountain. But at least imagine, you, you can't probably imagine Moses going up there. You can try. But try to imagine being the children of Israel camped around the base of that mountain. And time is going by. And all of a sudden, the kinds of things that happened, happened. Moses comes down from that mountain. He has in his hands the Ten Commandment law written by God's own hand. What an amazing series of events that are going on here. All right, I don't want to get into all that. I've got to keep moving. The sanctuary message, they learn from that whole practice. They slay, they all get involved in the process of slaying a lamb and confessing their sins on the head of the lamb. The other way around, confessing their heads on the sin of the lamb, on the heads of the lamb, and then uh, taking the blood from that slain lamb, and the priest takes it into the holy place and places it there. They've gone through the um, the experience of the day of atonement, and all of that means. Steve was just alluding to the day of atonement a moment ago, and speaking of that experience, we're all preparing, living in the day of atonement, preparing for the day when the, that goat is going to be put out in the wilderness. I'm looking forward to that day. The devil, that old goat, that's a good name for him, the old goat. I like that. Okay, anyway. And so they'd had this experience, and then begins the journey toward the promised land. Now, uh, as we uh, move in here into this next section, the rebellion of Kadesh Barnea, the author that, uh, that is kind of guiding us through this, Taylor G. Bunch, says, The long journey at Mount Horeb was to enable the Israelites... I'm in chapter 18 now. Everybody with me? Sorry, I know exactly where I am. But <laughs> Barbara, if you want a sheet, I've got more up here. I've got extra. Oh, okay. You're going to find it a lot easier. Sometimes it's better to concentrate and listen than... <laughs> Uh, teachers tell that, but if this will help you, it will. Yeah, yeah. So, um, again, top of uh, 
page 119, and we're looking here at the rebellion at Kadesh Barnea. And he says, the long sojourn at Mount Horeb was to enable the Israelites to learn the needed lessons taught by the law and by the sanctuary and its services by which was revealed to them the whole plan of salvation. You know, it was like a big camp meeting. There they were. I mean, they were camping, weren't they? And they were meeting. I guess you'd call that camp meeting. And they would, and, and you know what? Doug Batchelor wasn't there. Doug Batchelor wasn't there. You know who took his place? Moses and the Lord himself. God's there speaking to them. His presence is there in the, in the pillar by at night, fire by night and the cloud during the day. Jesus is there and he's leading his people and he's teaching his people. What a camp meeting. Well, we've got one of those coming and that's the one we're trying to get to where, where we're going to get to in the kingdom of heaven. But anyway, he's teaching them. And then uh, the author says, during these months, they also perfected their organization for the remainder of the journey and for entrance into the promised land. Now, quoting from Patriarchs and Prophets, next, she says, nearly a year was spent in the encampment at Sinai. How long? A year. A year. That's, you know, I'm not sure we're ready for a whole year of camp meeting. Um, we might involve more of you in keeping camp meeting going if that's the case, okay? Nearly a year spent in the encampment at Sinai. Here, their worship was taken, uh, had taken more definite form. The laws had been given for the government of the nation, and a more efficient organization had been effected preparatory to their entrance into the land of Canaan. The government of Israel was characterized by the most thorough organization, wonderful alike for its completeness and its simplicity. There are people today, and especially in, in America, where we tend to be more independent-minded. We like to have a control of whatever. There's some places in the world where they, they work with the church, and they expect the leaders in the church to tell them when to get up in the morning and when to go to bed at night. I'm exaggerating that just a little bit, okay, but I'm making my point. And that is that some people in some countries look at their leaders as the ones that should be guiding them very directly. In the United States, we have even moved farther than that, and we've almost come to a point where we don't trust leaders, period. And I realize I'm one of those, so I means you don't trust me. I understand that. But nonetheless, there's a balance in there somewhere, because God is organized, and he organized his people. So that's all I'm going to say on that subject. I mean, I may be my immediate time things, but I think the general conference organization is a tremendous organized group for our government actually. Repeating it for the uh, for the uh, for the recording here, you just pointed out that the General Conference is a wonderful organization for the church. And, you know, where would we be if we weren't carefully organized? And the General Conference help us, helps us to keep us together. Even though there are differences of opinion along the way, it still keeps us connected and going in the same direction. And it is a wonderful thing. And, uh, and I do, I too, also really do appreciate it. But now as we begin this journey toward the Promised Land, there are some things that are beginning to have to happen here. Um, you know, they've been camped for a while. They're anxious to get to the promised land. It's been a, more than a year now since they left Egypt. And with all these lessons behind them, they're ready to move ahead. At least we wish they were ready to move ahead. 
But God's now ready to take them ahead and try to see how things are going to work along the way. Uh, many had complained because of the delay. They were impatient to get there to the land of uh, flowing with milk and honey. And the Bible talks about that. And, and that was their dream and their hope. They knew that was where God was leading them. And they had less than 150 miles. Less than 150 miles. Now, 150 miles to a million people on foot is not like getting a new car and driving 150 miles. But nonetheless, it wasn't that far, right? It's about the distance from here to Detroit, roughly. And so it, it wasn't far, and you and I could walk to Detroit, not purposely, but we could do that, and if that was the only option, we'd get it, take us a few days. And they were organized, and they were used to walking, that's how they got around, so they were not far from the Promised Land, right? And God's intention now was to take them there. His intention was to take them directly to the promised land. That was his plan. Now, they started to run into some problem almost immediately. Ellen White says, and I'm on looking now at page 120 at the top, at the last sentence of a paragraph uh, from Patriarchs and Prophets 376, 377, their progress was necessarily slow and toilsome. Hey, a million people walking. Animals, children, elderly, all of that there along the way. And so into this problem enters more complaint. Now he talks here and, and quotes, I should say, from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 377, where it says in the next section on the open complaint, after three days' journey, open complaints were heard. These originated with the mixed multitude. Now there's a section in here about the mixed multitude, uh, a chapter in here about the mixed multitude. I don't have time to get into it. But when you think about the mixed multitude and you study this on your own, think about the parallels and the connections to us. The mixed multitude were people who were in it. And if you look at it real carefully, they were trying to be honest and worshiping the true God. They had seen, the mixed multitude had seen God work mightily with the plagues, right? I mean, that had to get your attention. And the mixed multitude were the ones who said, you know what, we're going to trust this God because it's not working here for us to stay here with the Egyptians, well, which was them, the mixed <coughs> multitude. So they were sort of converts, but they were also sort of not converts. They were in between with that. And so you had this mixed multitude, the multitude that was mixed up within the children of Israel, and they were a source of trouble from the beginning. That can happen in our churches today too. But I dare say that the issue is not whether a person is a convert or not, but what they're allowing to happen in their hearts. Because the truth is I can be born in the Seventh-day Adventist church, and my heart is really with a mixed multitude. So it's my relationship with Jesus that makes a difference. Okay, I don't want to get off on that. So they're complaining. And their dissatisfaction is contagious. I'm a melancholy personality, okay? You heard it here. I put it on recording. Laurie, you can listen to this. Yes, I'm admitting it. All right? I'm a melancholy, choleric melancholy. Ooh, bad combination, all right? And when I get melancholy, and it happens to me, and Lord has to work on me a little bit, but once in a while I get, I'm not, the word depressed is not it, I don't get depressed. 
but I, if I get frustrated or I get whatever and I'm kind of sullen and I come home that way, and Lori's all bubbly and happy, and those of you who know Lori, that's just the way she is normally. But I've watched the effect of me on my wife. And she says, you're not coming home and messing with my joy. <laughs> and I've noticed that, you know, okay, I get over it. And now then all of a sudden, she's kind of a little bit more sullen and all that. She's got enough choleric and it kind of kicks in a little bit. Contagious, right? It can be contagious. We have to not allow that to happen to us. Why, why God tells us that this kind of an experience, when we allow it to control our, our lives, is a sin. Now, you understand this. Anything that's a sin in my life is God's responsibility to take care of, not for me to beat up on myself about. God has solutions to these things and wants to help us with that. So, anyway, that eventually begins to enter into the... Into the in the hearts and minds of the others, and they begin to have some challenges. And here's what begins to happen as they start to complain. God has given them food to eat, right? Now, I don't know if you know about manna. Um, a little bit of what we know about manna is it was sweet, something like honey. Um, as far as we can tell, it was more or less a white or that kind of a color. Uh, must have been kind of, it seems to have been kind of clumped or, 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 or whatever. It had the, I think, the taste of a coriander seed. I don't know what coriander is. Maybe those of you who cook know what coriander seed is like. And uh, a couple other things about that manna there. But the manna did not change every day. Now, they could, cook, they could fix it in different ways. There's nothing that said they couldn't do that. I don't know what spices they may have had or what seasonings they may have had. But apparently, after eating manna for a while, they were a little tired of it. And they remembered being back in Egypt. You know, when you think about that restaurant that you really like to go to, and you're stuck on an island as a missionary, and you can't get to <laughs> I've been an island on a missionary, so that's why you know, I use that illustration. They started thinking about their diet. And I think the author rightly points out that their journey was one that also involved the health message because they needed to learn. God said that he wanted none of the diseases that they, the Egyptians had to fall upon his people. But the, the, the reason, the, the way that he was going to solve that problem was what, by teaching them, not just working a miracle, and teaching them that the things that caused the diseases of the Egyptians was something that was going to have to work out in a different kind of a way in their lives. They were going to need to have a change in their experience. God wanted to work with them in that manner. And so he points out here, it was during this experience that the Israelites were given further lessons in health reform, another necessary preparation for the promised land. Their open complaining, which started with a mixed multitude, included expressed dissatisfaction with the diet the Lord had prescribed for them. Quoting again from Ellen White, again in the, uh, they began to clamor for flesh to eat, though abundantly supplied with manna. They were not satisfied. The issue here was twofold. One was gluttony and the gluttonous experience that they, uh, that they were indulging in. They not only wanted to eat, but when they got what they asked for, they didn't just have a lunch. They gorged themselves. 
And as a result, God responded to that situation. Gluttony is a bad thing, whether it's in this situation or any situation. And, and God was helping them to understand that was a principle of good health, and he wanted that to change. I'm not going into much more on that, except just to point it out to you and let you work on it more. Go to the next page in the next section. It talks about the criticism of leaders. And I'm trying to think if I've got any more sets here. The only one I have is the original, so I'm going to pass this back here and, and do it. So You'll need this if you want to follow along with us. It'll help, okay? So the next thing that happens as they are beginning this journey is there are some other things that come along the way. Yes? Oh, yeah, we're on page 121 right now, uh, and you can find that in the notes there. That's great. Thank you. So the next thing that happens, as they begin this journey, notice what kinds of things begin to come up. The kinds of things that we find happening even in our churches. The issue of health reform is an ongoing discussion, and, and it needs to be, but sometimes it becomes a point of contention. Sometimes leadership becomes a point of contention. People complain about the leaders. They don't like the way the leaders are leading right at that particular moment. It might be the pastor. It might be the head elder. It might be the Sabbath school superintendent. Uh, you know, that's not to me what's important right now. But in this particular case, what happened? Moses is the leader that God has appointed. Yes or no? Yes, he's appointed Moses to be the leader. But along with him is Aaron and his sister Miriam as well. But Miriam kind of gets a, a little bit of a burr in her saddle, so to speak, and she gets upset about Moses' wife. And then she starts going from just being upset about Moses' wife into his role of leadership, and then pretty soon she and Aaron are complaining about Moses the leader and even questioning whether or not God has appointed him to that leadership. Now, folks, I want you to stop and think about this for a moment. How long has it been? Almost two years, roughly, okay? We have the plagues. We have the escape from Egypt. We have the Red Sea. We have Mount Sinai. We have the giving of the Ten Commandments. We have the sanctuary etc., 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 along the way in there, some miracles with water and a few other kinds of things. And here comes along somebody who's been right alongside Moses all that way, and the devil's able to get in there and say, hmm, not sure that this is really the leader that God wanted. Now, the implication of all of that was, if Moses isn't, we are. Sometimes we have to check our own motives, don't we? We have to realize that what God was trying to help them with is to lead them in the promised land, and here's the devil comes along, and he brings this on, and he comes down with a pretty serious judgment to deal with that issue. And he takes Miriam. She gets leprosy of the situation. Aaron has participated with this. He doesn't get the leprosy. But Moses has to go and intervene on behalf of Miriam before the Lord, and God, in his mercy, takes that leprosy away. 
But you know, we have to be careful, don't we? Sometimes it's better to just trust God than to be complaining all the time and even complaining about the leadership. God can take care of, if, if you've got a bad pastor, the Lord will take care of that. If you've got a bad head elder, the Lord will take care of that. If you've got whatever, the Lord will take care of that. And if the Lord doesn't, doesn't choose to take care of that, it may well be that what God is seeking to do is to teach you something through that experience. So I encourage you to trust in the Lord and to rest in Him and realize that He is trying to help you through uh, something in your experience and to guide you through that. He's leading you through to the promised land. Trust Him to still be able to do it. And God will take care of whatever needs to be taken care of along the way. All right, I've got to keep going through this here because that clock is doing it to me again. Um, now, as they continue their march, they're headed towards the promised land. And as they get um, closer to the promised land, something, an interesting experience takes place. This is this, where we get to the story of the 12 spies. Now, it's easy to come away with confusion here, but ultimately it's pretty clear. The idea of sending spies into the promised land was not God's idea. They sent spies out into Canaan for a reason. Did they send spies into Canaan because of their trust in God or something else? Lack of trust? Now, let's send spies in there because we want to see what? How big it is. Whether we can take this or not. The question wasn't whether or not you can take it. The real question is, God big enough to handle the problem? He'd already demonstrated he can handle a whole sea. He can handle the whole nation of Egypt. But can he handle one little old city in Canaan or all these pagans that are there? That's part of the challenge that they were experiencing with this. God didn't send them in there. He had a different plan. He's trying to teach them to trust him, and that's not something they seem to be yet quite good at. So now, let's take our Bibles, and I want to turn to Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. Deuteronomy has some of the story as well, but Numbers has the best uh, summary of it. And as we look at it, we get a little bit of an idea of what's going on here. Time won't allow us to go through this all in detail. And, um, and I do want to point this part out of here because I want you to see it, because you're going to say, after what you just said, and you're going to read verse 1, you're all going to come away with a different idea. Verse 1 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to you, to the children of Israel. Ellen White and elsewhere, Ellen White makes it real clear it wasn't God's idea. But people have a way of appealing to God and wanting to do something, and God is willing at times to allow us to do what is in our hearts. Because it's part of the growing and learning experience. And the children of Israel still had some things in their hearts that were not yet uh, allowing them to be ready for the promised land. And it becomes real clear in here in this story. 
So they send out the, uh, the spies into the land, and Mo Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the children of Israel, and there are their names, they're listed there, down for all posterity. For the last several thousand years, their names have been there, all 12 of them, and there's no question about who they were and what they did in the results that followed. Only two of them are names that we generally remember because the others were rebellious and that's part of the story here. So they go into, the, into that place. They're gone for 40 days into the, into the land and uh, let's see, where's the... In verse 25, it says, they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation, the children of Israel, and the wilderness of Paran and Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Can you imagine that day? Here the uh, spies have been gone for 40 days. Boy, you notice how that 40-day theme keeps coming back around? That's not just coincidence, I don't believe. Moses is on the mountain for 40 days. They're gone for 40 days. How long was Jesus in the wilderness? 40 days. This is part of that ongoing great controversy experience that we have. This is where the devil can get his way in and try to bring about his way or God comes in. This is a chance for us to be dependent upon God and to rest entirely with him. The spies go off for 40 days. They come back and they are carrying with them samples of the fruits of the land. And they had some great things. A whole, they had to, the vine, the grapes on the vine were so large and so heavy they had to carry it on a pole between two men. I mean, that's how, you know, that's, that's pretty remarkable. And for people that have been wandering in the wilderness eating manna all this time, that should have said something pretty significant. Wow, no more manna, grapes. And the other things that they brought back, wonderful evidence of the fact it was a land flowing with milk and honey and the other kinds of things they bring back. Time to go into the promised land, so let's go, right? Well, in 40 days, the devil got to those 12 spies. Two of them managed to resist the temptations. But in verse 28, someone read verse 28 for us, please. Nevertheless, the people who go in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anakir. Someone read verse 29, please. Oh, no, no, not all at once, please. Anybody read verse, I'm going to start calling names here pretty quick. Verse 29. Go in the land of the south and hid it, and do say, and emerate, go on the mountain, and go by the sea, by the coast of Georgia. Okay, so here are the children of Israel on the border of the promised land, the spies come back, they're carrying the evidence of the land that God said that was their promised land, the promised land, and they're ready to go in. And then they say, oh, <clears throat> nevertheless, just something we think you should know about. And verse 30, then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, oh, come on, folks, this is no big deal. 
Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. Someone read verse 31. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, they are stronger than we. To whom were they looking? They said, For they are stronger than whom? They are stronger than we are. Now, the issue here is us versus God. Now, let me ask you a question. Were they right? Yes. They were. But they should have been adding there, they are stronger than we are when we're by ourselves, but we have God. And that's what, uh, what um, Caleb was trying to point out to them, that we are able to do this. Caleb was going by faith, the other spies were going by their own personal weakness. Now, I don't know about these numbers because I'm not going to get to any of these numbers, but you just stop and think about it for a moment. Twelve spies go out. All twelve come back. Ten of them are unfaithful, and two of them are faithful. It's a reminder to us that we're all susceptible to failure in God's work if we don't trust Him. We have to be willing to trust Him. But there are some people who just simply won't trust Him. They'll trust themselves to the very end. Yeah, I think Mike tells us if the numbers were reversed, if there was 10, 4, and 2 against, they would have went with the 2 against. Exactly. It's exactly right. We tend to go with the dissenting voice. You know, oh well. You know, we could go all kinds of places with that, but we won't do that. Here's Caleb and Joshua. Um, and quoting from Ellen White uh, at the end of that little section on Caleb and Joshua, uh, she says, but there were only two advocating the right. There it is right there, actually. While ten were on the side of rebellion, the unfaithful spies were allowed in their denunciation of Caleb and Joshua, and the cry was raised to stone them. Didn't say it quite there. I thought maybe it was going to be the place. But anyway, she points this out that this was a dangerous moment, and they were ready to stone him. God intervenes, and then we begin to see things happen. Now, I want you to go to De Deuteronomy chapter 1, please. Deuteronomy chapter 1. And we're going to look at verse 25. By the way, you want to compare this passage here with Numbers. Remember the part in Numbers uh, 13, verse 1, where it says, God said that? Catch this part here, and I just want you to see it so that you understand I'm not kind of losing my mind here or untrustworthy. But um, this is Moses speaking, right, in Deuteronomy, and, and he makes this uh, point. He says in verse 19 at the end, Then we came to Kadesh Barnea, see that? And I said to you, you have come to the mountains, the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. Look, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it as the Lord God of our fathers has spoken to you. Do not fear or be discouraged. No, that was God's instruction, right? I mean, that was Moses' instruction. And that's what God wanted them to do. Notice the next verse and see what it is that they said. And every one of you came near to me and said, let us send men before us and let them search out the land. So it is the people that are coming and saying, let's send the spies out. And God is the one who relinquishes and allows them to have their direction and say, okay, I told you to go in, but if you've got to send the spies first, then go ahead and do it. But this was kind of the beginning of trouble for them. So 
They sent in the spies, and then in verse 23, it goes on, the plan pleased me well, so I took 12 men and all that. Now, verse 25, they took some of the fruit of the land in their hands, brought it down to us, and they brought back word to us, saying, it is a good land which the Lord our God is giving us. In verse 26, nevertheless, you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. Verse 27, someone read verse 27 for me, please. And you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he hath brought us forth out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Okay. Now, you can read verse 28. I'm going to skip that one. Verse 29, Then I said to you, Do not be terrified or afraid of them. The Lord your God, who goes before you, will fight for you according to all he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son in all the way that you went until you came to this place. Moses is trying to prevent the people from losing heart at this particular moment. But the difficulty is that it starts with these 10 men and it begins to spread throughout the camp of Israel, which seems to be so typical of that whole process. And before long, the whole camp of Israel, the whole camp of Israel enters into this resistance. It becomes a resistant movement and says, we're not gonna trust the prophet of God anymore. We're gonna trust our own ways. Do some parallels in that, folks. I'll give you one. I know that over in Europe right now, there's a, a conference or two over there where the leaders do not believe in Seventh-day and in Ellen White. I'm telling you the truth. It's documented and understood. I'm not saying all of them. I'm saying some of them. All I'm pointing out to you, we're all susceptible to this. We have to learn to trust the prophet that God has given to us. This is not a, bat a battle of theology. It's a battle of trust in the Lord Jesus Christ that the prophet he's given us is worthy of trusting. Now, you've got to understand the history of Europe as to why that's happened there. That happened a number of decades ago. And, and through that history, it spread still into the church. It can come back into us. There are people in your church who may not believe in Ellen White. That's unfortunate, but God has is telling us and reminding us that he has given us a prophet among us to lead us into the promised land. Why would in the world would we come to the end of the world, the most significant event this world has ever seen since the birth of Jesus Christ as the Savior, and where every event along the way, God always had a prophet to lead his people. Why would he neglect to give us leadership at the end of time? And here we are, that's parallel, one of the parallels that we have in this situation where God is still leading his people. All right. The danger of that not following the prophet is it can lead into rebellion. And when it begins to lead into rebellion, God's church is in trouble. So you see the section here under the call to rebellion, Deuteronomy uh, 1, 25, 28. I just want to make sure you know where I'm at. And I think I get off a little bit from you, but it's roughly 123, okay? And then it says, the rebellious hosts of Israel did four things that brought them the wrath of God according to the scripture. Now, I know it's changed because it changed when I was taking notes and it changed right here. So I don't know where exactly we are, 
on it because my notes when I I'm, I mark my notes like this if you can see it and when I do that it makes my computer go kind of crazy word tries to follow me and that's not a not a good thing do you have an idea where I'm at where exactly 123 to the end okay that's right and then completing that paragraph it uh, mentions the four th he mentions the four things that brought the wrath of God. Notice what they are. Their murmuring, there's one, brought a slander upon the land of promise. Next, the appointing of a captain to head them back to Egypt. They appointed somebody. Now, understand what they're doing here. They're taking over from the way God has organized His church, right? He's organized His church through Moses, and now they're saying, uh-uh, we're, we're taking over now. Okay, mutiny. It's rebellion against God's leadership at that point. It's exactly what's happening. And, uh, and head them back to Egypt, which was paramount to the rejection of God's leadership. They had rejected the messages of God's prophets and therefore the spirit of prophecy. This rebellion that was taking place in the children of Israel and the difficulty that was happening here was the reason why God had to then begin to respond to what they decided to do. And in Deuteronomy 1, which is where you are, look at verse 34. Verse 34. Um, someone read that for me, please. And the Lord heard the sound of your words and was angry, and took an oath, saying, Surely not one of these men of this, of this evil generation shall see that good land of which I swore to give to your father. Okay. Whoa. That's pretty direct, isn't it? I mean, there's a little bit of rebellion going on here, or is there? There's a lot of rebellion. It's actually coming to the point where after the almost two years or roughly two years of experience the children of Israel had under God's leadership, they're coming to the very borders of the promised land and they're going into rebellion. And they're saying, God, you're not going to be our leader anymore. When you read the rest of this, look at verse 36 and follow me. Except, say, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it. And to him and his children I am giving the land on which he walked because he wholly followed the Lord. And that included Joshua, by the way, um, as you see in verse 38. The Lord was also angry with me for your sake, saying, even you shall not go in there. Verse 38, Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall go in there. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Go down to verse 40. But as for you, turn and take your journey into the wilderness by the red way of the Red Sea. Huh? Wow. Go back where you just came from. Then you answered and said to me, We have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight, just as the Lord our God commanded us. Verse 41. And when every one of you had girded up on his weapons of war, you were ready to go up into the mountain. And the Lord said to me, Tell me, tell them, do not go up or fight, for I am not among you, lest you be defeated before your enemies. All right. got to stop there because the clock is running on me. Read through that story on your own time and through the parallels and all. Children of Israel... Number one, they rebel against God's leadership. Number two, they choose leadership to replace God's leadership. Number three, God says, I'm sorry, but you have rebelled against me so much, so turn around and go back where you came from. 
And like spoiled children, they say, Daddy, we're not doing it that way. We're going to be in charge. We're going to go up and fight. Okay, we get it. We're going to fight. We're going to fight now. We're going to fight now. It's okay. And God says, no, it's not okay. And they insist on going and doing it, and they go up and fight, and they get defeated. And finally, they realize they've got no choice because God's not with them. They can't win this war. Folks, if you rebel against God and you refuse to go the direction God tells you to go in your life, you will find you're always pushing against Him and He can't help you until you stop resisting Him. You can't, he can't help you until you submit to His authority in your life. God can't work with you in your life until you surrender to Him. That's what God wants to do in our lives. If you get no other lesson than the two that I've asked you to get, the first one is faith and trust in God. Trust in Him completely. Number two, Learn that if you rebel against Him, that He can't help you. So turn around and surrender to Him so that He can help you. They rejected the sentence, but it, the rejection still didn't change the fact that God had a problem and had to deal with them. If you go further on, there's a section where it says God's plan altered. Do you see that place? At the end of that section, there's a quotation from Ellen White again, page 392 of Patriarchs and Prophets. God had made it their privilege and their duty to enter the land at the time of his appointment, but through their willful neglect, that person had, permission had been withdrawn. Satan had gained his object in preventing them from entering Canaan. Satan had gained his object. What is Satan always trying to do? We're in the great controversy. He's always trying to get us sidetracked off onto something that will prevent God from being able to work in our hearts and our lives. I don't care what it is, and through the history of the Adventist church, there have been all kinds of side trips and side journeys and all of that. And God says, please, just trust me and do what I'm asking you to do. That's all God wants of us. Then it's a, he has a, uh, the author has here a section under unconsecrated leaders, a few unconsecrated leaders who depended on human strength and numbers instead of the Lord turned the Exodus movement back into the wilderness for a 40-year delay in reaching their goal. Unfortunately, there's a parallel with the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and you could anticipate that there would be, because God says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that these were given as examples for us upon whom the last days will come. And the last days are here upon us and we are doing the same thing. And in our history over the last 150 years, we've managed to do exactly what the prophet said we would and where we would go with this. So we go into the next chapter, which is Kadesh Barnea in Antitype. And I'm going to rush through this because there's one more chapter that's so critical here that I, I do not want to lose that because if I do, we've lost everything. As with the children of Israel, God's people came to a point in which they came face to face with the direction God wanted them to go in and they failed to follow His instructions. If you look at the Laodicean wilderness section, uh, here in chapter 19, it's probably onto the second page. Mine says 127, right? Okay. 
under the Laodicean wilderness there, the author says, between the Mount of the Law and Kadesh Barnea, ancient Israel passed through a dreadful wilderness. Also between 1844 and 1888, the Advent movement passed through a dreadful spiritual wilderness. It was the Laodicean wilderness. During this time, however, they learned many valuable lessons in obedience to divine leadership. It was a challenging time. It was a time of growth in the early Adventist church. It was a time when they learned about the sanctuary and they began to uh, uh, develop and understand, I should not develop, but understand that sing- that doctrine and that truth and the other truths. But during that time, they also fell into something else. Ellen White describes a little bit later um, uh, in the uh, next section under spiritual desert. You see that? There's a quotation near the end of that, that uh, from Ellen White. Volume 5, pages 11 to 93, she says, My heart aches day after day and night after night for our churches. Many are progressing. You see what she says? Many are progressing, but in a track back. That's how they were progressing. They were going backwards. And essentially what happened during that time is the churches became a place where she describes it in the next paragraph, further rebukes. She says, As a people we have re-preached the law until we are as dry as the hills of Gaboa that had neither dew or rain. We must preach Christ in the law, and there will be sap and nourishment in the preaching that will be as a food for the nourished, famishing flock of God. I really wish I had a chance to get into this whole discussion in depth. And it really isn't my purpose here. My purpose is to get you into really looking at the parallels and the progressions here. But this is getting into the story of the early Adventist church coming to 1888, the General Conference of, of 1888, and God says that there was a special message that God was giving to his people at that time through a couple of servants who eventually left the church, tragically. That doesn't mean that God wasn't leading them, that God wasn't using them. He was. He was trying to help them. He was trying to get them out of the wilderness that they were wandering and their dependence upon the law of God. And uh, and just as the children of Israel were at Mount Sinai, and he's trying to get them back into the sanctuary to understand what the sanctuary message was really all about, and that was Jesus is their source of righteousness and strength and help. We call that message today the message of righteousness by faith. This is the message that God was trying to teach them at that time. And in 1888 and the ch- time afterwards, the church, the Adventist church, rebelled against that message. Now, at this point, you can open up all kinds of discussions. Okay? And we don't have time for that discussion. It's subject for another class or whatever. I want to give you a couple more points on this before I get to the last section, that will, uh, last chapter where we will begin to close this down. If you go to the next paragraph where it says retreating spiritually, do you see that? I'm filled with sadness when I think about the condition of our people. The Lord has not closed heaven to us, but our own course of continual backsliding has separated us from God. Then uh, go down to the section on the next page on the borders. See that? that uh, on the borders, the section says that Advent movement was on the very borders of the heavenly Canaan to those, uh, in those momentous days is evident from the following. In 1879 came the cheering message, we are now on the very borders of the eternal world. Do you realize that the Seventh-day Adventist Church, God's people at that time, were on the very border of the promised land in those early 1880s, 
in that time. They were just about there. God was about to lead them through. He wanted to take them in just as he wanted to take the children of Israel into the promised land of Canaan. But they came to Kadesh Barnea and they turned Iran scared. And that's just a reality. And that's what happened in that situation. When you uh, go on in this uh, chapter, let me bring out a couple more points. Uh, under the section divine credentials, I, I really want to go into more of this, but I don't. But I want you to catch a couple pieces. Under the section divine credentials, over and over again we are assured that this message was from heaven and bore the divine credentials. And quoting again from Ellen White, the present message, justification by faith, is a message from God. It bears the divine credentials, for its fruit is unto holiness. Go ahead and read more on that section. There's more testimony that she gives here and leads us into an understanding. She describes a meeting there and some of the things that were going on. Very valuable study that I'd like to get into. I see disturbed looks on your faces. Don't get too disturbed yet. Okay? Pardon me? Really? You don't have the section? Oops. Looks like when... Uh, when Shelley was copying it, it must not have gotten copied. Sorry about that. Hey, look for it in the coming thing. You'll have something to look forward to in your material, okay? It's on page 130, so you can mark it down for that and, and see that. Sorry about that. Let me try to put it up on the screen. This is time for me to do that. Oops. Yeah, does it really? Oh, that's good. That's really good. Really not good. Okay. Yeah, you, you'll get it later is what you'll do. Let me see if I can pick up the end of this real quick, just so you can follow on the screen a little bit. <laughs> uh, this paper says deacon and deaconess. Does it really? That's okay. Somebody, somebody needs to mark that down on, on that so I know that part of it. Yeah, that, that, that's part of that class. That's right. Please do that right now. So it doesn't get confused. Yeah. It will be when I get done. Yeah, later. Yeah. At 3.30. Exactly. Oh, that's really helpful. All right. Can anybody see that at all? At least a little bit? Okay, so he says here over and over again, we are assured that this message was from heaven and bore the divine credentials. And the quotations from Review and Herald, uh, September 3, 1889. And she says, the present message is a message from God. It bears the divine credentials for its fruit is unto holiness. Okay, so let me keep going with this. You're going to have to put up with a little bit of changes on the screen. So I keep uh, going where I'm going. Anyway, that encouragement that he gives us there then she says this about what happened after 1888, and it's marked in red, so that makes it easy for you to find. It made my heart glad to see those who had been connected with the publishing work for a period of 30 years rejoice as young converts rejoice in their first love. So something happened in Battle Creek after 1888, and there began to be a, a revival taking place there in the hearts of some people who for years had been working for the church but had been uh, not uh, really being able to trust in God. Now this is the part I want you to catch of this because I've mentioned to this to you before. The message of the gospel of His grace was to be given to the church in clear and distinct lines. 
and that the world should no longer say the Seventh-day Adventists talk about the law but did not teach or believe in Christ. The efficacy of the blood of Christ was to be presented to the people with freshness and power that their faith might lay hold upon its merits. For years the church has been looking to man and expecting much from him but not looking to Jesus in whom our hopes of eternal life are centered. Therefore God gave to his servants a testimony that presented the truth as it is in Jesus which is the third angel's message and clear and distinct lines. And this is something I want you to go home and study because the right message of righteousness by faith at first does not jump out at you when you look at the third angel's message in Revelation 14. Because when it starts out talking about Babylon has fallen and don't get the mark of the beast, you're saying, wait, 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 wait. But ultimately, here's the deal. You don't get the mark of the beast by saying no to the mark of the beast. You don't get the mark of the beast by saying yes to Jesus. You get it? And that's the difference. You gave Jesus control of your life. All right, there's more here. There's a whole chapter on the opposition that follows and all of that. But here's the last chapter I want you to take you to. And that is... Okay, oh, I, I know, I keep confusing 21 and 29. Here we go. I will give this, this will be in the material, and this is the one that none of you have gotten at all, but chapter 29 is this one. And this is where I want to end our time. Even though I don't have a lot of time, I want you to catch up on this part, and I will summarize it for you. But I want you to see it on the screen, if it's going to let me. Here we go. Mark down Numbers chapter 21 as a point where you can go back and you can even open your Bibles and look at number, Numbers 21. As the children of Israel um, went back into the wilderness, you can naturally understand they had been given a sentence of death, right? <clears throat> God said you're going to go back in the wilderness and here they are 40 years in the wilderness. That was not God's intent. It was not His plan. They chose that plan. That was their decision to rebel against God and to do that. But as they got out there, they started to get depressed. I wonder why. I mean, have you ever been in a desert for 40 years? But they didn't have any other choice. They had rebelled against God, and this is where they were. They entered into spiritual depression at that time, and they, they really were having a hard time. You get into verse 5, and all of that you can begin to follow. But here's one of the things that begins to happen as they are losing their courage and losing their faith and entering into this funk, if I can use a modern term, and into this depression and, and this discouragement, serpents come into the camp. Who are the serpents a symbol of? Satan, Satan absolutely. Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. Satan is a symbol uh, for us. I mean, the serpents are a symbol of Satan. Maybe that's why we hate snakes. Anyway, um, and they were permitted to come into the camp of Israel. But why? Because there was criticism and complaining going on. And they were allowed to come in there and there began to be problems. And the snakes would bite them and they died. And when the, when the snakes died, I mean when the snakes died, when the people died, they became desperate for help. And God, I mean uh, Moses saw what was going on and because of that, he responded by going to God and saying, God, how do we solve this problem? He goes and turns to God, and God says, this is what I want you to do, Moses. I want you to build what? Sanctuary. Not the sanctuary. 
the serpent. He wants a brazen serpent to be raised up there. Now, don't get confused with this. This is not lifting Satan up as a symbol here. It is Christ being lifted up. Remember in the New Testament, Jesus said, If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me, right? And so that's exactly what was happening here for the children of Israel. They're out in the wilderness. They're in a funk. They're in depression. They're in rebellion. They're in a spirit of complaining and, and all of that. And God says, I've got to help these people. And the snakes come in because they, he's withdrawn their protection. Those snakes had been there all along, folks. They'd always been there. But because of their complaining, God took away his protection. He didn't send the snakes... The snakes went in on their own. He had been protecting the people, and that's why they didn't go in before. And so in they come, the people are dying, and they get to turn toward Jesus. The remedy to all of our situation in this world today, in preparation for the return of Jesus, is for us to do what Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. All men and women today need to be drawn to Jesus. We need to be drawn to Jesus. And as you look at this whole study of the Exodus and the Advent movement, recognize the parallels and the connections in the experience of those those people and the problems they had along the way, the struggles they had along the way, the discouragement they had, the rebellion they had, and say, Lord, where am I in all of this? The only thing I need is to realize I need to trust you by faith. <clears throat> the children of Israel weren't going to win those battles by themselves. They wouldn't even have to have fought them. You and I aren't going to win the battles that we face in our lives by ourselves. The only way we're going to win that battle, those battles, is by trusting in Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. Look to Him. He's the one who is leading you closer to Jesus, uh, to, to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is the one who's leading us to the kingdom of heaven. And I want to put this on as we conclude. Yet there were many who had faith in the provision which God had made. Fathers, mothers, brothers, and sisters were anxiously engaged and helping their suffering, dying, dying friends to fix their languid eyes upon the serpent. <clears throat> if these, though faint and dying, could only once look, they were perfectly restored. They could not help themselves from the fatal effect of the poison of their wounds. God alone was able to help them. And then she says, they knew that there was no virtue in the serpent itself, but it was a symbol of Christ and the necessity of faith in his merits was thus presented to their minds. That look implied faith. They lived because they believed God's word and trusted in the means provided for their recovery. Don't leave camp meeting without making a commitment and a surrender to Jesus. Don't leave camp meeting thinking that you have to struggle on your own in this life. Realize that the lessons that we've been studying are here as examples for us who live in the last days just before Jesus returns. And the examples are all of pointing us to the Jesus who loves us. The Jesus that is the source of our faith, but he's also the, the focus of our faith. 
If we will learn to trust him, he will promise, he has promised to give us the victory, just as he gave the children of Israel the victory and they eventually entered the promised land. He is going to give us the victory and we will very soon be entering in the promised land. Ellen White said we were just on the borders of the kingdom back in 1879. I believe we're just on the borders of the kingdom of heaven right now. Now is not the time to turn back. Now is the time to press on ahead. Jesus is coming again. Before we have a closing prayer, I want to ask you this question. If in this study today or all through this time, you've heard Jesus speaking to your heart and saying, yes, I want to, I, I, you want to say to him, I want to be surrendered to him completely. I've, maybe I've been, I'm not saying you are, but maybe you have been trusting in your own faith. We all have a little bit of human in us. Some of us, like me, have a lot of human in us. And we need to turn it over to Jesus. Do you want to say today, I want to turn my life over to Jesus? If you do, just say, Lord, I want my life fully in your hands. I want it totally in your hands. I want to trust you completely. I'm going to allow you to lead in my life. Continue. God bless you. God, continue to study together and learn from him. Let's pray, okay? Father in heaven, it's been a joy to study your word. We've only scratched the surface here, but it hits some of the highlights. And perhaps the most important one is the one we spoke of in the last few moments, that Jesus is the source of our faith and he's also the focus of our faith. He's the source of our healing and the source of our help. I pray, Lord, that as we've made this recommitment to you today, that you will indeed take us and strengthen us more and more, that you will give us power in our lives that we don't deserve, but that we so desperately need as we look to Jesus. Fight the battles for us, Lord. Strengthen us and also keep us faithful and teach us how to be obedient in that faith, we pray. And thank you for hearing our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.